Welcome to the Compliance Time, AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 3 of Compliance Time. With the global pandemic hitting businesses, both legitimate and illegitimate ones, and having negative effects and changes to the economies, cryptocurrencies remain a topic of interest for many, and they draw more and more attention. Do you feel you need to enhance your knowledge about cryptocurrency? This and next episode of Compliance Time will be all about cryptocurrencies and blockchain. In this episode, we have the pleasure to have Teresa Anaya. You will hear more about the Cryptocurrency Training Academy and some of the most interesting crypto investigations from the experience of Mrs. Anaya. She has over 25 years of experience in accounting and information technology with most recent 10 years in fraud, money laundering and terrorist financing investigations. Mrs. Anaya draws her knowledge and experience from her work performing investigations for global financial institutions, including investigating reasons for failure of financial institutions in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008. Her area of expertise is in the financial institution vertical, specific to global know-your-customer standards, transaction monitoring and suspicious activity reporting. She is often engaged by global regulators for her knowledge and expertise related to illicit activity and mitigation strategies for the risk involved with transactions involving cryptocurrency. Mrs. Anaya co-developed the Certified Cryptocurrency Training Certification Program with Robert Whitaker, who is a former special agent with US Homeland Security. In her current role, she is the BSA AML Officer for Trust Token, creators of the first compliant and public attested stablecoin through USD. She has been the keynote speaker for the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, including speaking for the ACFE in Abu Dhabi, and most recently invited to the CAII, Peru's leading anti-corruption conference. Mrs. Anaya is a Certified Cryptocurrency Investigator, Certified Fraud Examiner, Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialist, ITIO3 Certified and a Certified Bitcoin Professional. Hi Teresa and welcome to the Compliance Time. Really glad to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. So, to jump right in with the questions, how did you uh, start your compliance career? What sparked your interest in AML and fraud prevention? So, um, my career started in accounting and in IT, um, but where, where I am today really started about 10 years ago when I was called to do um, investigations for failures of financial institutions during the financial crisis. So I was actually called to go do work for the FDIC. The FDIC is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And they are the ones that will actually go um, and take a bank or failed financial institution into receivership. And oftentimes they'll, they'll create a prearranged marriage to make sure that the failed bank is being merged with another bank that can handle it and then um, caters to the same community of, of customers. 
Um, so from that, when I was put on that project, I wasn't real sure my skill set was going to be valuable because, I, frankly, I had never closed a bank, so I didn't know what I was doing. But I quickly realized that most of the people on those projects had never closed banks either. It was a very unique time in history where there were a lot of failures, um, but you needed a lot of disciplines um, for, for the people to be able to go do that. And the discipline that I offered was um, my lending background and being able to review a loan. So a lot of the work was um, reviewing the loans that had failed um, and, and that were in default and then determining whether there was fraud and writing up a summary of that. So um, it was refreshing to find that, hey, my skill set really was valuable and useful. And I was um, a little disheartened to see all of the different fraud involved with a failed financial institution. And it's not necessarily just from borrowers. It's um, across the board. There's a lot of parties involved that um, can, can take down a bank, um, including borrowers, bank officers, third party lawyers. Um, and, and so the work that I did there is extremely fascinating in that when you perform an autopsy, the bank is dead. Um, when the bank is alive and you perform an audit, you, you will get what you ask for and you may not even get what you ask for um, when you're an auditor. Um, when it's failed, you can look at anything. You look at all of the emails, the board of director minutes. Um, it's, it's very interesting. So after that work, I really thought that there wasn't going to be anything more interesting that I would be doing and thought my career was probably going to be pretty boring, but boy, was I wrong. So I, um, after that, I moved on to several remediation projects. And the one that um, brought me into the cryptocurrency space was the project for Standard Chartered Bank. So Standard Chartered Bank had been caught deleting the Iranian country codes from their transactions and um, received a fine of 600 plus million dollars and had to agree to a remediation project and a look back. And the look back um, came from the, the number of detection scenarios that they had in place. And the detection scenarios they had in place were completely inadequate for the profile of the bank, the risk profile. Um, the bank banks in high risk jurisdictions and to have only 12 detection scenarios was really not adequate. So um, regulators had them increase those and rerun the data for the previous four years. And that created an 80,000 case backlog that had to be reviewed. It was a very massive project. And the $650 million fine um, paled in comparison to the money that was spent on the remediation project. So in my time on that project, I worked on approximately 1,500 investigations. And I received a few of those that were related to cryptocurrency, which brings me to my job here today. Um, when I, when I was looking at those investigations, um, I recognized I was completely not prepared to be able to investigate what is crypto. Um, the case that I was looking at, um, I can't remember if it was the originator or the beneficiary, but the entity was involved in crypto. Now, the case didn't trigger on cryptocurrency because the bank wasn't accepting cryptocurrency. There was no reason for them to have a detection scenario for crypto. However, it did trigger on probably high risk to high risk or whatever the detection scenario was. Anyway, I determined that the originator was involved in crypto. The bank had a very low risk tolerance for crypto and we were instructed to escalate. I did the best that I could, but it um, piqued my interest. And more, not, not from a, wow, I really like this idea interest. It was a, I have no idea what they're talking about here. This yep. is, I, I don't get it. Um, so when I, I got the case, I, um, I remembered the day before on my LinkedIn feed that I had seen someone mention something about blockchain. And I went, wow. So I went back, went through the feed, scrolling, trying to find it, finally found it. 
um, reached out to the gentleman who had posted it. His name was Robert Whitaker. And um, his, his profile just indicated that he worked for um, a government agency, but there wasn't a lot of details for a reason. And um, he was very kind, responded to me and sent me off to read the Satoshi White Paper. Um, Satoshi Nakamoto is the originator of Bitcoin. And the White Paper is a good overview of what Bitcoin is and, and the premise behind it. So I went out to read a Satoshi White Paper about 20 times. And, um, it, and if you ever get in a position where you're going to explore that, just understand it's okay. It's not a very technical document. It's just a, a whole new way of thinking that it takes a minute to absorb. So after the, the Standard Charter Project, I, I moved on to Bank of America to help them um, build out a proprietary KYC application so that all customers coming into Bank of America would be screened in the same manner and the same decisioning. And then after that, I went to MoneyGram. Um, MoneyGram is a, a global money service business, for those of you listening um, who may not know. And they were under a deferred prosecution agreement for the United States government for lax AML controls and fraud controls. So I was put on the team um, to do, I was doing pretty much the same work that I was doing at Bank of America, writing the system requirements to meet the regulatory requirements that the government was, was putting on uh, MoneyGram. Um, and that's when Robert Whitaker reached out to me. It was about two years later. He had noticed that I came from a, a, a traditional banking, financial crime and compliance background, but I had been following crypto for two years. And that was interesting to him. Um, he reached out and said that um, he was going to be in Dallas and would like to meet with me. And in my mind, I went, hmm, man off the internet says, says you're a Marine, but I'm not so sure. So um, my husband's a former Marine and I asked him to, to go to dinner with us and we met Rob and Rob was exactly who he said he was. Um, and we sat down to dinner and he slid uh, NDA's to both of us to sign before we were able to speak. And then um, he went on to explain that he was former Department of Homeland Security in charge of the cryptocurrency investigations program, and that he had recently retired and had gone to work for Blockchain Intelligence Group. Um, Blockchain Intelligence Group, acronym BIG, um, had been recruiting him for a year and it took a while for them to convince him, but he, he, he made the jump. And he explained to me that he came from a law enforcement background and the relationship that law enforcement has with banks is a very different relationship than what someone inside a bank who has worked inside a bank um, might have with, with banks. Um, my, how I typically phrase it is, you know, law enforcement typically serves a subpoena and says, I need records. And um, that, that's not a very friendly relationship, although the law enforcement community does try. And to some extent, the banks do try to work with law enforcement, but it's typically not a lovey-dovey relationship. <laughs> um, so he needed someone who understood banking and someone who had had an interest in crypto. And I was a real strange, weird unicorn who had been following it for two years and still frustrated with this puzzle of what is this and what, you know, and as I'm, I'm sitting at Bank of America working on this really stressful project, I'm reading this information daily because it's now coming in my feed. And I, I think to myself, am I wasting my time reading this? Because this is crazy. This is strange. This is different. Um, but I just kept reading for whatever reason. And, you know, here I am today. Um, I find it to be a fascinating concept and um, there's so much to learn. And I'm the type of person that I'm an avid learner and 
I'm always fascinated with new technology and where it is and what it's going. I'm not technical and it's always a challenge for me to understand it, but it's fascinating to me. So, so that's um, where I am. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's the technical part of it is also really confusing for me because I also have experienced some technical. <laughs> I, I will say that in, in the time that I've spent here, I really, I delved in to get pretty technical understanding, um, trying to get a, a better understanding of the cryptographic hashes. And because I've been asked very deep questions by regulators and things like that, I've had to learn it at a level that I think most investigators won't need to. Um, it's good to know, but you don't have to. So I don't want the the technical piece of it to deter investigators from wanting to try to step into this space. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity and there's going to be a need for it. And so I don't, and that, that was part of us developing um, the training program, which I think you may want to talk about shortly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to, to add to that, I also really think that um, to be a good investigator, you don't always need to know the technology behind it. I mean, um, you need to think more of the, um, um, how it would be used in terms of doing something criminal or bad with it. Right, so, right, exactly. Yeah, so, so I am sure that I don't understand also some technical ba standard banking products, <laughs> not blockchains, <laughs> like how probably it works on the background. Um, but yeah, to, to come back to the uh, Cryptocurrency Training Academy, uh, you and Rob, uh, are the, the co-founders of it? Uh, yes, yeah, co-founders. So can you tell us how it started, how the Academy uh, yeah. went on? Yeah, I'll, I'll take you back to our meeting, that, uh, the first meeting that we had. Um, I left that meeting and um, was very astounded at the instant good rapport that Rob and I had. And, um, you know, that just doesn't happen very often in your life, um, or I've not had that experience, to find someone that you can work with so instantly comfortable. Um, so <clears throat> as soon as I hired on, um, Rob scheduled a trip to South Africa where he had some contacts there. Um, the uh, Department of Homeland Security attache had um, some inquiries from the South African Police Service Cybercrime Division. They were being called on um, more and more to work cryptocurrency cases and they just didn't have the expertise. And so Rob and I set up time to go there and do a training session. And when we got there, um, they were the kindest. They, they made us feel like royalty. It was really very interesting. And I, I'm looking at Rob going like, who are you? <laughs> uh, they, uh, they, they had representatives from 24 different countries of the southern part of Africa attend this training session. And that was a little overwhelming for me. I was brand new to blockchain intelligence group, still trying to get my hands wrapped around what we were doing. And Rob was really good. He had his presentation. He had been doing trainings on cryptocurrency and I was all ears and absorbing. And then after that, we went and met with a couple of banks and we met with uh, the FIC, which is the equivalent of FinCEN in South Africa to sort of give them an overview of what we were seeing um, and just a brief education. In all cases, we had um, anywhere, I think I, I probably told you a moment ago, it was about 40 people, but we 20 to 100 people in each training session that we would go to. And um, in every case, there was always one or two people who really knew crypto. And you could tell from their questions that they really knew it. And everybody else in the room was like, huh? Okay, what is Bitcoin? And a lot of times in this space, um, especially in banking, 
there are a lot of people who feel like they should know uh, because Bitcoin is over 10 years old, but they're a little too embarrassed to admit it. So we've really had to tiptoe around that. And even though they tell us, don't give us the basics, we kind of have to give them the basics because they really need the basics. Um, so we, were, we would do our presentation of the basics and depending on the audience and the type of questions, we could go through that pretty fast and get to the more of the case studies and more details. Um, but as we were doing, we went to Singapore and did that, did a presentation at the, the Securities Commission in Singapore and then Hong Kong, um, just pretty much all over the world. And we quickly realized physically it was going to be hard for us to go do our sessions all over the world. And it was going to be too expensive for a small company that was a startup. So we came back and Rob said, yeah, we need to do this. It was Rob's idea. We hired a company that um, actually produces learning uh, management systems for law enforcement. And we put together the program with them and they really helped us um, design it to be professional. So we had the content we needed to put some shine to it and, re and refine it. And they were very helpful in doing that. And what we ended up with was a very professional course. And one thing that I wanted that I, I, I just didn't want to happen was this was going to be a course that law enforcement officers could take to get their continuing education credits. And I did not want it to be a course that they could listen to and just click, 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 click through and then never get anything out of it. So when we were working with that company, um, we said, look, we don't want it too technical that people are going to glaze over and not get it. But we also don't want to make it too easy. We want this to be valuable. Um, and I think we hit that happy medium with that. So our first few modules are the basics of Bitcoin and then blockchain. And we actually go through some of the details. And then we move into uh, the third module is, um, I believe the third module losing track, can't believe it. I know this inside. I had to review it eight times, 38 or 30,000 words. Um, oh, wow. the, dark, oh, the criminal element, the dark web, and then we have the forensic analysis of it. Um, so those are the, the modules. And each module is about one to two hours, easy enough for you to be able to take in your downtime. And um, we have exams after each one so that you can become familiar with it. And then there's a final exam afterwards. And we tried to make sure the questions weren't tricky and weren't difficult. In fact, Rob and I were, we were the, we took the test after. Now we designed the course. We helped write the questions and we were taking the course and we would fail the same question and we went, all right, <laughs> something's wrong here. We have to go back and, and rework this. So we did. There were a couple of questions that were um, just not, not good. They were too complex and too confusing. And so we had to go back and rewrite those. Um, but I, I think we've settled in on it. And when we released the course, we really tried to pick a broad group of, um, I guess, about 10 people and offered the course to them for free um, in return for their feedback. Like, could they please provide a review for it? And we, I took, um, I actually had a law student who was very into crypto and that's what he was doing his thesis paper on. And so we used him. We also used investigation professionals. We used law enforcement, used banking professionals. Um, it was, we had a broad set and they were very helpful in helping us um, refine the course. I am very proud to say that our very first certified cryptocurrency investigator is Beatrice De Silva. And she was with Interpol out of Singapore. And she had a very stressful job at the time and four kids and she went through that course and was certified first. I'm just so, so excited about that. I was like, that was awesome. Yeah, it's great. Um, uh, what would you say are the top three benefits of being certified cryptocurrency investigator? 
Um, I mean, let me think about that. Um, I think the first one is kind of what I've touched on. Um, uh, we may have discussed before the podcast, um, but it's the course is derived from Robert Whitaker's knowledge and it's real actionable information. Um, it's not just academic. It wasn't put together by a college professor who had really never done investigations um, or from a, a writing professional who can write, but may not have actually done the investigations. Um, so I, I think that's one of the biggest benefits from it. Um, and then I think something that people may not realize is that the learning from this course forces someone out of their comfort zone and it may be uncomfortable, but it conditions one to learn to be comfortable with the unknown. And that's really hard. Um, and it's been really hard for me, even though I'm someone who really likes to learn, I, I there's still so much to learn in this space. And um, uh, there are times where I'm like, I'm just not getting it. I'm just not getting it. Um, but I keep at it and I'm, I'm learning to be comfortable not knowing and trying to, to get there. I think there are a lot of people in the financial crime and compliance space. They're analysts that are at large banks and they get pigeonholed into doing the same thing over and over again. And there's a large portion of them who get frustrated by that, who want to move on, who want to learn a new skill set. And I, I've been in that, that position and I would say you, you're going to have to take it upon yourself to go to try to learn these things. And that's what this course is and just go read and, and try to develop a specialty. And that leads into another benefit that I think is learning this adds to your resume a specialty that not a lot of people have and it's needed. Um, if you're not familiar with crypto, crypto uh, and the blockchain, it's really blockchain or distributed ledger technology. And I say distributed ledger in this context specifically because it's a lot like the internet. Um, when when a Bitcoin transaction is verified, it's verified by a group of um, their miners or their, their authorizing, authorizing the transaction as being valid. Mm -hmm. And those are, they're voluntary. It's a lot like internet. Um, so you can have um, an internet node put up and anybody can do it. Same thing in crypto. So this has already been set up. It's already established the criminal element has already figured this out and there's not one country or one person that can take it down. So it's always going to continue to exist because initially because of its privacy aspect, it was um, criminals saw the advantage of it being anonymous. Now what blockchain intelligence group is doing is creating is making it pseudo anonymous. Um, you can track these transactions because it's technology and they're trying to build out that technology. Um, so that it makes it easier. Um, but building that speciality, um, I think, really adds to the resume. Um, and then also one of the intangibles is once you start to understand that blockchain and how it functions, a distributed ledger technology functions, it can really change the, the power structure of banking and finance and how it exists today. And once you have that understanding, you will then be, um, you will have some camaraderie with other people in the space. And whether you agree with it or not, just having that understanding 
um, creates, you know, a group for you to be able to be associated with. And I think that's a benefit. And then also, um, once you've completed the course and become a certified cryptocurrency investigator, you're, you're part of the team. And um, there's a small but growing number of us. Um, as we move forward, we, will, we can stay in contact with each other. And because this, I co-developed this course with Robert, and um, regardless of where I go, which <clears throat> I've recently moved from Blockchain Intelligence Group to a company called Trust Token, and I'm their BSA AML officer. So I'm not really with Blockchain Intelligence Group, but I'm a co-founder of this course, and my name is on it. And I believe in it. And so I continue to feel ownership of that and also responsibility to the CCI team members. Um, this is a group of people who, who had enough confidence to take the course and to get certified. And I feel like I owe it to them to support them. And so um, as I continue throughout my career, I'm very aware of who our CCIs are. And if there are job opportunities that come up for them, then I'm certainly going to promote them and help them move forward. And or if they have questions, if they're working on investigations and there's anything that I can do to help, happy to do that. Um, it becomes a real team is, is how I perceive it. And so I, I think there's, I'm hopeful that there's an advantage of that. Uh, and right now, um anyone can become a certified cryptocurrency investigator or there are some requirements that need to be fulfilled before that? No, there are no requirements. The course was designed for it, the, the people exactly like me sitting at Standard Charter. I was just a, an AML analyst investigator working AML cases and I had no idea what Bitcoin was. And that's a problem. There, there's so many people in the financial crime and compliance space who don't know what it is. And a lot of banks feel like they have no exposure to it, and they do. Um, that market was, um, at one point, the market cap for all cryptos was almost a trillion dollars. It's come down to about $200 billion now. But that's $200 billion where you can launder money. And um, they're doing it effectively. You can also do sanctions evasion easily. And yeah. so um, staff do need to be educated and brought up to speed on that. Um, so when I go and I do training sessions, which I've done with um, HSBC and Bank of America, there's a particular peer-to-peer -peer network called um, uh, localbitcoins.com. And what that is, is it gives someone the ability to go exchange cash for Bitcoin or Bitcoin for cash. And you connect through this localbitcoins.com. And oftentimes the people that are offering the services will accept payment via a deposit into a bank account and they advertise that on the website. Um, so um, when I was at Bank of America, uh, when I spoke to Bank of America, I went out to localbitcoins.com in Charlotte, North Carolina. And sure enough, there were people willing to accept cash for Bitcoin, Bitcoin for cash outside the banking system. And in order to receive payment, they would allow that payment to be made via a deposit into Bank of America or uh, Wells Fargo, or, and I would demonstrate that in my meetings with Bank of America to show them you do have exposure to this financial crime, you just don't know it um, because there's, it's, it's hard to detect and the technology is being built, um, built out. And so, yeah, um, when uh, we were in Singapore, Hong Kong, HSBC, it did the same thing at HSBC because they, you know, MoneyGram, Western Union, when you go to localbitcoins.com, you can see all of that. Um. Is it still on that website? 
yeah, uh, yeah. You, you can go out there. I, the, you will find local Bitcoin traders um, in the city. What city are you in? I'm in Warsaw. In okay, yeah, you'll, yeah, yeah, you'll find some in Warsaw. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, local, um, localbitcoins.com. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe, yeah. And, and I, I will pause. Um, in, in being in the space that I am um, and working with our developers at Blockchain Intelligence Group, there are a lot of people who are privacy focused and their desire is simply privacy. It's not that they're doing anything criminal and there's nothing criminal about wanting to keep your information private. Um, and so you will find that although I speak about local Bitcoins in a negative light, there are people who just want to trade in private and they're not doing anything illegal. Well, the same is true for the dark web. So people may be doing transactions on the dark web and they're not illegal. The point I'm making is it's a high risk location. So just, just like high risk countries, there are people doing completely legal, legitimate business there, but we all know that there's a higher incidence of illegal activity and therefore we put it on our radar. So it's, risk analysis, basically. So I just make that caveat. I don't want people listening to the podcast and then attacking me later saying, I wasn't doing anything illegal on local Bitcoins. No, but the Bitcoin itself started uh, having a lot of bad reputation with the Silk Road and uh, being abused from different um, criminals in different ways. So as an idea, it's something um, good and that could work well or will work well i mean i don't know we'll see <laughs> only time can tell but it got so much bad reputation that i think uh, a lot of banks and financial institutions just proclaim it as no we're not going to touch that i mean it's not even coming close right. that's that's exactly what happened the criminal element took hold of the opportunity in that and it rightfully so received a bad reputation but i would say in the last two three years two years definitely three really um, that has really turned around. And that came from um, 2017 when the price of Bitcoin um, went up to almost $20,000. What happened was there was a lot of money that flooded into the, the distributed ledger blockchain cryptocurrency markets. And what that did is it funded a lot of startups to be able to develop out the technology in different ways so that it could be used for non-illicit purposes. So being able to use it for... Um, uh, shipping and um, uh, uh, tracking. And so I, there's one project that I know where they're, they're tracking um, cows from the field where they eat to where the meat goes um, and where it is sold. And then for voting systems too, because it's extremely secure. So one of the, the, uh, the cryptography used is SHA-256. And although you will see a lot of criminal cases related to crypto and Bitcoin, that encryption has never been broken. It's typically the infrastructure of the exchange that's broken into, not the encryption associated with um, crypto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. And now to get from your uh, broad experience in cryptocurrency, if you have to pick one case which involves money laundering with cryptocurrencies, which one would that be? Oh gosh, that is so hard because there's they're 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 different, and I may go against what you're saying about one, and maybe I can speak about a few of them. Um, so, um, 
I guess the case that we worked on the most and we spent the most time on was um, a theft of 6 million bitcoins um, with a large uh, police agency in Asia. And we had visited that um, police force and spoke with them. And about six months later, they called us and said, hey, we have a case. And um, that police force was really pretty good at working crypto and understanding it. But they were unsure of themselves and they knew they were against somebody who, who was a crypto thief and, and they, they felt he was probably more te technologically advanced than they were. And so they asked us to do a side-by-side -side investigation blindly. So they were doing theirs and we would do ours. And they paid us to do it to just basically do a double check of what they were doing. And the premise behind that particular case was um, in crypto, you have what's called um, hardware wallets. And those are like a mini thumb drive. And one of the brand names is called a Trezor. And I believe in this particular case, there was a, a, an individual who um, had 6 million stolen, but she, I believe it was a she. She had met with a, an investment expert in crypto and she brought her thumb drive with her, the Trezor. And in the conversation, social engineering, the thief or the cryptocurrency um, investment advisor gained her confidence and she gave him her private keys. So while they were in the meeting, the way I understand it was that he also had a Trezor, an empty Trezor that looked just like hers. And before the meeting was over, sleight of hand, he switched the devices. She leaves with an empty Trezor thinking it's hers. He takes her Trezor and he now also has her private keys and then quickly started moving the funds. She put the device back where it was in a secure place. Don't know where or what it was. Um, and months later realized that it was gone when she went to go check. So she didn't check for months. By then it was gone. And so we worked on that investigation and was able to track it um, down to within a few dollars. Um, so one, we verified she did actually own thousand um, dollars worth of Bitcoin at the time. And we were, the, the Bitcoin moved in two different directions initially, 500 and 500 was moved. And then it, the, the third move or the second move, it 999 came back together and one went one way. Anyway, it was, they moved out in 43 different directions. And that was the investigation that, that we worked on. And it was very much a team effort at Blockchain Intelligence Group. Robert, Andrew Coral, and myself worked on that basically through the holidays. Um, and so that, that one is, is a big one that comes to mind, um, basically because of all the work that we did in documentation. Um, and then um, a case that, that Rob brought from Department of Homeland Security was a case um, with a gentleman by the name of Aaron Shemo. He was buying drugs from China, um, synthetic fentanyl. And I didn't know much about drugs because I'm just not a drug person and don't work in that space. But what I didn't know was the, the synthetic um, fentanyl that is shipped in, um, it because of the chemical properties of it, it can clump together. And in Aaron Shamo's case, he was running three illegal pill presses in his Utah home. And they would take the fentanyl from China and, and press it into a pill. And when I was talking about the clumping, what happens is clumps of that fentanyl can end up in that pill. And there's like, when I do my presentation, there's like two little tiny or three little dots in a vial and that's a deadly dose of fentanyl. And so because of how it, it functions and it can clump together, someone can take a pill and you could die um, quickly. 
And that was one of the reasons we put this together, just to bring awareness to, to that crisis. So um, Aaron Shemo um, was convicted and he was actually attributed to overdose deaths. Um, he was sending out over thousands and thousands of pills all over the United States. Um, and he was known by the name of um, Pharma Master, I believe was his name, on a dark net market site that has now been taken down by law enforcement. Um, and then I was actually approached by a former law enforcement officer about a Ponzi scheme that was being promoted by Steven Seagal. And yeah, I know he put his name on it, should not have. Where individuals would invest $1,000 into this Bitcoin scheme. And um, this group of people uh, I've learned, and that there's a certain portion of me that goes, hmm, they, they were pretty wealthy and pretty intelligent and they invested a thousand dollars and the scheme was um they they could not get their money out and they were not getting what they were promised i can't remember the details um and the i guess the 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 founders of the fund if you will um spoke to them and said well we can't get you the money but what we're going to do is we're going to break it up in order to make this work better and whatever how they however they were explaining it but in order for us to break it up, we're going to need you to submit some more funds. I can't remember if it was $30 or $300. So each individual actually anteed up and sent in more money. And so they were bringing the case to me saying, look, we have a case. They've taken our money and run. I'm like, wait a minute. You guys are intelligent people. You already thought there was a red flag saying, hey, I can't get my money. and Things aren't right. And then you sent them more money? Um, I don't know where that case was. Um, they had contacted um, all the appropriate agencies and law enforcement. Um, and then the last one that comes to mind is Quadriga. It's a cryptocurrency exchange where the founder had gone to India on his honeymoon and supposedly died. And he only had the pri he was the only one who had the private keys to 140 some odd million dollars. And that case is still being investigated. And that's pretty interesting. It's hard for me to believe oh. that he's. It's hard for me to believe he died, hard for me to believe that he was the only one with the private keys, but hey, there are stranger things that have happened. Trust me, I've seen them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, talking about just a bit for the Ponzi schemes, uh, I've been listening recently to some podcasts about uh, one coin, which is um, also a great example of a Ponzi scheme that really tricked a lot of people into investing in air condition marks, uh, a lot of money into basically nothing so yeah, yeah. I, I get so frustrated with that because um i'm very interested to see where the blockchain technology can go um distributed ledger technology i think it's fascinating to me still and it's very frustrating that there are all of these criminal actors i guess i they they're either they're criminal in nature because they started that way or they become that or they're just really bad business people and We've got to find a way to clean it up and work with the projects that are legitimate and support the projects that are legitimate. I can't tell you, I'm very active on LinkedIn and I get so many messages of people wanting to try to sell me some new scheme. And sometimes it's fun to play with them. It's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> did, you go, did you look at my profile? Seriously. <laughs> You'll have to record some of them. I have seen uh, quite good videos of the people just uh, uh, scheming the, the false schemes <laughs> and making jokes with them. For a yeah, I had one guy, He once he realized it, he's like, oh, no, I am so sorry. And, and then he tried to backtrack. 
The thing is, <laughs> half of them are bad profiles, not valid profiles. It's not like there's anything that can be done. I'm not going to tell them that, though. <clears throat> yeah. Um, all right. And um, speaking of cryptocurrency investigations, what do you think is the greatest challenge in front of such investigations right now? Yeah, it's still the mixers. So um, you can take Bitcoin and you can send it to these services called mixers and they'll mix up the Bitcoin and you lose the trail. And those are still a problem. Um, also in my current work with Trust Token, um, the way Binance works, it's one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world um, based out of China. They, they, the way they handle their wallets, it performs and acts like a mixer. And it's very difficult to track anything through that. Um, very frustrating for us. And then um, the, the biggest thing that I don't know that we'll ever overcome I think it's just a reality we have to figure out is that the privacy advocates and the technologists behind the privacy in the tech space, they're moving at lightning speed as compared to law enforcement and law enforcement tools. Um, they're just very big proponents of it and they want to keep it there and they can get venture capital funding because um, I guess the venture capitalists believe they can make a ton of money off of it. Uh, so that that's one of the biggest challenges, but I think that's true. Most Criminals and white collar crime, they're creating new ways to do whatever they're going to do faster than law enforcement can keep up. Um, so it's, it's always going to be a cat and mouse chase. Um, I'm just hopeful that we as a society will continue to build out our technology tools like what BIG is, is building to try to, to thwart them um, so that technology can move forward like it should and without the criminal element. Yeah, that, that, that's, ve that's very interesting uh, and very true that the everything that you said. Um, just to finish up with um, a forward-looking question, what, what do you think will be the 2020 trend in AML and compliance? Um, I, think, um, I think what we're seeing is <clears throat> the regulatory environment has really been in turmoil the last two years. Um, initially regulators were like, no, this is going to go away. We don't have to pay attention to it. And then it was like, ah, this isn't going away. This is still a thorn in our side. Wow. There's some really big players that are starting to come around. They're still here. They're now starting to form, um, associations and lobby groups. Okay. Now we have to pay attention. Okay. Now there's Facebook. Okay. Now we're starting to understand it. Now let's really evaluate it let's see what we can do. So I think that the tide has turned. Some agencies around the world have turned that tide quicker and they've actually started developing um, the, the, the policy around it. They've, some of them have made a good stab at it, but it's still inadequate. So I think although as slow and painful as it is, you're starting to see the frame of mind change. And you're starting to see them go, okay, well, what can we do? How do we need to do this? And engaging with the community. Um, there is one particular aspect um, related to the travel rule, which is basically the originator's information being sent through, in a, in a standard way, a wire transfer. So the originator's information has to travel with those instructions. <clears throat> that is something that the industry um, should have already been um, adhering to and hadn't because it just goes against how Bitcoin is done. Yeah. 
So there's a lot of focus on that. There's a lot of technology being built out on that so that they can try to adhere. The only hope is that FinCEN doesn't come down too hard initially um, while the industry works on that. Um, the industry is taking it serious, but I think the regulators think they may be dragging their feet on purpose, but they're not. Um, the legitimate players in this space really are trying to find a solution to it. And there, there are some, but again, it goes against the whole idea of the anonymous nature of Bitcoin. And so there's a lot of friction um, related to that and and the technology side of it is having to get very creative on how do we adhere to the rule but yet still keep um, the the Bitcoin integrity in, in place in terms of privacy um, if they can. To me, that's really interesting to see how that's going to play out. Yeah. Do you think it will be a result this year or um, no. It, it, it's going to be evolving very slowly, although, um, and especially with 2020, um, the, everything's slowing down and um, those, the companies that do have a revenue stream are going to see that dry up to some extent. Um, a lot of the startups um, are not going to be able to go back to the markets and get funding when they thought that they probably were going to be able to. Um, you're going to see consolidation and you're going to see some failures. You will see some failures um, of the weaker players. And um, that's a tragedy because there was some really pretty good momentum going and technology being built. Yeah. We'll see uh, maybe new ones will appear after everything comes yeah. down at some point. Let's where hope there, more. Yeah, where there's where there's change, there's opportunity. So there, yeah. we'll just have to see. I, I wish I had a crystal ball, but I don't. But those are my thoughts. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for um, being here with us today. Um, in the show notes, I'm going to include the link for the Cryptocurrency Training Academy, if that's all right. Yeah. yeah um, so um, people can see it and take a look. Maybe somebody would, would be interested to become yeah. a certified investigator if anybody has any questions on, on the podcast um just ping me on linkedin i'm always active and always out there happy to answer questions and respond thank you so much again for um for, the, for your time you bet okay have a good one bye-bye thank you bye thank you for listening to compliance time if you enjoyed this episode make sure to leave us a review which will help others to find the podcast also, you can subscribe for email updates on our website cmpltime.com. Till next week.